So, uh, 1 Kings 17. 1 Kings 17. Uh, I want to make it through the miracle of provision in Elijah's life. We've got to get Elijah to Zarephath. A um, little bit of review, then we'll jump into the text. Uh, the name Elijah means the Lord is God, or God is the Lord, or uh, God is Yah. Um, Yah, El is God. Yah is Yah, which is the beginning of Yahweh, the beginning of Yahweh or Jehovah. So Elijah's name means the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God. He is the God. You know, Baal's not, or any of the other gods you create's not. Uh, he is the God. Uh, he's, you're going to eventually hear Elijah say to the crowd, which, which God are you going after? Which God are you choosing? He is God. Um, he, is, he is being raised up as the, you could almost say the first, uh, the greatest prophet. And he's raised up at the darkest, darkest, darkest time uh, in the in the state of Israel, in the kingdom of Israel, uh, who's ruling? Ahab. And Jezebel. Jezebel. Um, and when you're when you're told, like you're told at the end of chapter sixteen, that Ahab is the worst of all the kings of Israel, that's bad because they were all bad. He's the worst. He's the worst. So uh, that's what you have happening here. You've got Elijah being raised up at 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 the lowest point. Um, in the life of the kingdom of Israel. The kingdom is split. So you got down in the south, uh, uh, Judah, which is Judah and Benjamin. They have Jerusalem. In the north, Israel, the ten tribes of Israel, um, they're in the north. That's the kingdom we're dealing with. That's where Elijah is. That's where Ahab's ruling. Uh, this is the darkest period. And when you talk about the darkest period... Think about this as you approach an election. When you talk about the darkest period in the life of Israel, they were doing well economically. They were doing well militarily, strength. Why was it such a dark, according to the biblical writers, why was it such a dark period? What made it the darkest period? Out of worship, idolatry. Yeah, you, you've got, thank you, Myra, you've got, um, you've got Jezebel coming from Phoenicia, bringing in the pagan gods, bringing a whole lot of pagan priests. Uh, Baal, B-A-A-L, you can say Baal or Baal. Baal is, is the pagan god that comes as a package deal with Jezebel, and Ahab is fine with that. Whatever it takes to be strong and powerful and economically prosperous, you know, marry whoever and let them bring their gods with them. So you've got Baal worship happening in, 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 in the northern part of Israel. So that's what makes it the darkest period. I'm sure there were people on the streets there in Samaria. Samaria was the capital city of, of Israel. That's where Ahab would have reigned. Sometimes the whole area of Israel northern kingdoms called Samaria. I'm sure there were people on the streets of Samaria that said, this is the best times we've ever seen. But God evaluated it differently um, because of the idolatry. Uh, because uh, Ahab and the kings before Ahab didn't want those people going to Jerusalem to worship, they set up rival worship places. 
um, in the north. Uh, some of you have been with me to tell Dan in the north, and you see one reconstructed there. Um, God made it very clear, my name shall reside in Jerusalem. You come to Jerusalem uh, for the festivals. Jerusalem is where animal sacrifices were offered for atonement. Um, but again, the kings in the north didn't want their people going south. They created their own worship places. And again, that led to uh, apostasy is a good word, a falling away from the faith. I'm not sure that our culture, our Christian culture, even knows there is such a thing as apostasy. You can fall away from the faith. If, if you're praying every morning and seeking the face of God and trying to hear the voice of God through the Scripture and then go look up your horoscope, <laughs> you're, 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 you're doing what they did, syncretism. You're taking a little bit of the, the faith of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you're mis mixing it with some paganism. When you go from, you ask Yahweh what to do, and then you go ask the stars what to do. Yeah, you're mixing stuff there. And that's why, that's why Israel is in such a bad situation. So Elijah, whose name means God is Yahweh, God is Jehovah, God is Yah, um, he's the prophet that's raised up. Um, so we left him last week in the first seven verses. Um, he, he goes first... To Ahab, a lot of, took a lot of courage. He goes to King Ahab and, and he says, As the Lord, the God of Israel, see the emphasis? As the Lord, the God of Israel, not whatever other gods you may be choosing, Ahab. As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve. And by the way, you're going to hear that phrase again in a moment. As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except by my word. And we saw that from the book of James, that drought lasted three and a half years. Uh, it came about because of the prayers of Elijah. Um, this is, um, I don't think I even said this last week. What's really going on here, I mean, a drought is bad. You've got to have both the rain and the dew in the Holy Land to, to, for there to be crops. But um, I don't think I said this last week. When you think about Baal, Baal, he, is, he, he was a popular deity among a lot of pagan cultures surrounding Israel. But probably the most common way he was known was the god of fertility, the god of storms, the god of rain. So when Elijah shows up and says, it's not going to rain, he, even this is showing which god is the true god. Your god of fertility and storms and rain is pretty impotent. Uh, my God says, it's not going to rain. And for three and a half years, it doesn't rain. Um, you see where Elijah then is sent. He is sent away from the territory of Ahab to the other side of the Jordan, to a ravine, the Kareth Ravine. He goes there. He is miraculously provided for. Who feeds them? The yeah, the ravens. The ravens feed them. He's there by a brook. So he's being provided for. Uh, again, you're going to see him go to Zarephath in a few minutes, and um, you're going to see supernatural provision again. But he's being provided for by God there for a while. Then all of a sudden, the brook dries up. That, that's verse 7. Let's start with verse 7 of chapter 17. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Well, finally, the drought caused this brook to dry up. Um, 
I'm sure Elijah didn't do this, but I can only imagine how I would have reacted if you dried up my brook. I, I mean, this is the only thing keeping me alive is these ravens bringing me food and, and, and the brook bringing me water. And, and of course, you can live a whole lot longer without food than you can live without water. And here is his brook dries up. So uh, again, we find Elijah in a desperate state. I'm sure he at least had a passing thought. You know, God, I'm serving you. I've done exactly what you're asking. I've gone to where you've asked me to go. And now you dry up my brook. So pay attention to how Elijah responds. Pay attention to what God does. This is how we're going to get to Zarephath. So sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him. The word of the Lord coming is how God answers Elijah's desperation. God didn't answer Elijah's desperation by sending a whole lot of bottled water. God answered Elijah's desperation by, by speaking, sending a word to him. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go, go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. A um, couple things about that. You know, people seem to be concerned about learning God's will. One of the problems that we as humans face in trying to learn God's will, we want God to reveal all of God's will to us in one neat package. God, God's word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Lamp unto my feet. That's the next step. God leads us one step at a time. God leads us one day at a time. God leads us, give us this day, our daily bread. You know, I, I, I usually want to go back to God and say, God, tell me your long-term plan here. What, what am I going to be doing 20 years from now? God doesn't tend to reveal himself to us that way. So the only thing Elijah gets is a destination. Go to Zarephath and stay. And the word stay there means you're going to be there a while. This is where he's going to stay. Go to Zarephath and stay. Uh, if you have a Bible that has maps in the back, um, find, find a map. You know, the, the name places change over history. So if you do have like a map that shows you the time of the prophets or perhaps the, uh, the time of the kingdom or even the time of the divided kingdom you probably can even go with uh the time of um david and solomon because you're going you, i want you to look for the place of sidon s-i-d-o-n again the geography here is really important um if you see sidon now, if you have a map that is actually from, you know, that's trying to help you with the time of the prophets, you may see that just south of Sidon, north of Tyre, probably whatever map you have will have Sidon and Tyre on the coast. On the coast. Look on the coast toward the north. On the coast, you'll see, you'll see Sidon, you'll see Tyre. Even if your map doesn't have it, I'll tell you, right in the very middle on the coast between Sidon and Tyre is Zarephath. That's where Zarephath is. Uh, but Sidon's famous. Tyre is famous. Even to, even to the times of Jesus, Sidon and Tyre are, are famous. He's, they're mentioned by Jesus. But so you see the coast. 
Now, you see the Sea of Galilee. That hasn't changed. Uh, that's the little body of water in the north. And you see the big body of water in the south, the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea or the Great Sea. And you see the Jordan River flowing between the two. If you look at the Galilee and just start heading south on the Jordan River, um, not far south, we don't really know exactly, but not far south to the right of the Jordan River. That's why it's not in Ahab's territory. To the right of the Jordan River is where Cherith Ravine would be. So here God shows up and says to Elijah, leave where you're at and go to Zarephath. Do you see the distance? It's about 100 miles. Uh, And there was no, you know, train system in that day. It was about 100 miles. Um, And he does it. He does it. He gets the next step in God's will, and he does it. He doesn't say, what am I going to do in Zarephath? Is there a plan B, God? There's another city I'd rather be in. He just says, go to Zarephath and stay. Now, here's what you need to know about Zarephath. It's there on the coast. It's right underneath Sidon. Where is Jezebel from? Sidon. Sidon. Your map may tell you, depending on the period of your map, that is Phoenicia. That is the center of Baal worship. That's where Jezebel came from and brought those hundreds of Baal prophets. I'm sure Elijah wouldn't have, I would have. I'd just say, God, can't you at least send me some good Jewish people? But he's being told to go to Zarephath, 100 miles away, during a drought... Uh, scarcity of food. He's going in almost, he's going into the homeland of Jezebel. Remember what Jezebel's father did? He ruled there at Baal. He's the ruler there. So he's, he's been on the other side of the Jordan to be outside of the jurisdiction of Ahab. And he's being told to go right into the jurisdiction of a king who is a Baal worshiper, the father of Jezebel. Again, when you see these geographical Things in the Bible, they're there for a reason. Uh, they're there for a reason. So go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have a question. Yeah. You've been to all these places. About 100 miles. About 100 miles. Um, because that's about the same distance as you look at your map. That's about the same distance as uh, from like the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea. Yeah, about, about 100 miles. So. You know, I'm sure Elijah didn't do it, but I just said, isn't there a plan B, God? Some good Jewish people near some water that's not salt water, Mediterranean. By the way, now Israel has done amazing work. If you go to Israel, off the coast, you'll see these amazing plants. Like not greenery, but industrial plants. They're taking salt water and making it into good water. Because water is is important in this region. Anyway, but they didn't have that in Elijah's day. So yeah, for so many reasons, I'm sure Elijah said, this is not where I want to go. But he goes. And then look at the second command here. It gets weirder, really. I have commanded a widow. I I like the way the King James says it, a widow woman. I wondered why my ancestors and my grandparents always talked about widow women. It's because they had heard the King James. We don't say a widow woman. But the King James says, I've commanded a widow woman in that place, in that place, 
to supply you with food. Now again, we're in a drought, which means food is scarce. Widow is synonymous with poor in biblical times. So I'm sending you to a poor person who is to feed you. That's more bizarre than the ravens feeding him. But look at verse 10. So he went to Zarephath. And it doesn't even say begrudgingly. It doesn't even say against his will. So he went to Zarephath. Um, that'd be like sending me to Las Vegas. I mean, don't tell me to plant a church in Las Vegas. I mean, it was like Timothy Keller, one of my heroes who died recently. He planted a church right off Times Square. God bless him. He, he could do it. God gifted him to do it. That's not where I would want to go plant a church. I was talking, I met somebody last week from Southern California, and I was explaining the Bible Belt to them. Um, it was not their world. It was not their world. I was explaining the Bible Belt. I, I'm glad I'm in the Bible Belt. But um, go to Zarephath. He went. He's going to be fed by a widow woman, a poor widow woman. Keep going. I mean, think, look at all the miracles that are here, and we'll talk in a minute about sort of the applications, faith applications. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, the widow, a widow was gathering sticks. Now you're going to learn in just a moment, as you keep reading the text, she's gathering sticks. Have you thought about why she's gathering sticks? You're going to learn in just a moment as you read the text. She's preparing the last meal for her and her son. And then they will die. That's, that's what she's thinking. So it's, it, this, is a, this is a time of despair. So she's, she's at the town gate and she's gathering sticks. Um, he called to her and asked, because God told him to find him a widow woman here, and he's found him one. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so that I may drink? As she was going to get it, which is absolutely amazing to me, because, I mean, here she is gathering sticks to cook the last meal for her and her family. We know there's Lisa's son um, to eat and die. And here comes this stranger. And again, this is a widow in Zarephath. She's not Jewish. She's heard of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're going to see that in a moment. Um, she does know Elijah. And Elijah says, go fix me, go get me some water. Again, it's amazing to me, um, as, she was going, as she was going to get it, he called, oh, by the way, bring me a piece of bread. <laughs> you know, it's, it's amazing. Look, look at how she replies. Because I wouldn't have started walking in that direction myself, but she's walking, then he asked for bread. Look at how she replies, verse 12. As surely as the Lord your God lives. Now, that's sort of standard protocol in the ancient Near East. Um, but she, you, you learn real fast, his God's not her God. He, she's being polite to him, but his God's not her God. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and do what? And you're asking me for bread and water? So uh, this is a, an amazing scene here. 
an amazing scene on so many levels, and we're going to unpack it in a minute. So look at verse 13. And, and, and again, let me back up a minute. It looks like Elijah's being selfish. Bring me some water, and by the way, bring me some bread back. You'd think he's being selfish. God is testing this woman. God has already said, you're going to go find this widow woman who's going to feed you. Well, that widow woman didn't get that memo. So she's being tested. So um, I feel for her. I really do. And I'm a little amazed at, at, at her. So look at verse 13. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. One of the most common commandments in the Bible. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You're in a drought. You're about at death's door. Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make me a small cake. Make, make a small cake of bread for me. And again, it, it, if it were not a test and we didn't know the rest of the story, Elijah would look pretty bad right here. But first, make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. Verse 14, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, not your God, but my God, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. You know, I, I know you've seen the movie Ten Commandments, right? Charlton Heston movie, all that Old Testament, um, the plagues in Israel. I uh, hope that you, when you see that, what you're, I hope you realize what you're watching is, is God showing himself to be stronger than the gods of Egypt. You see which God wins that one. Well, the same thing's going on here. Who's the strongest God? Who's the strongest God? Your Baal worship, you're worshiping a false god. At best, you're worshiping a demon that might do some things for you, you think. But he's not a god. Yah is God. Elijah. Eliyah. Yah is God. So you, you see throughout all the story of Elijah, who's the real God? This is a battle between the gods. You know, uh, he's, he's gone to the land where everybody would say, well, the king is called Et Baal. Baal lives. That's what the name of the king means. Um, they think Baal is the God. And Elijah is going to show all the way to king and queen who the true God is. So, so God has to, just like God did in Egypt with the plague, God has to work some miracles here. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day that the Lord gives rain on the land. Just like God miraculously fed the children of Israel in their wilderness wandering, He's going to do the same thing for, for this family, which also, feeds, which also feeds Elijah. She went away and did as Elijah told her. So, you know, it's amazing to see Elijah's obedience go from Cherith to Zarephath. But here's a pagan woman. Here's a Gentile pagan woman who does exactly what Elijah tells her. She went away and did as Elijah told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. You know, Elijah... And, and they would have picked up on it quicker than us, but Elijah wanted this widow of Zarephath to perhaps say, who is the true fertility God? 
Who is the living God? Who is the God that can, that can supply? Who is the God that... That's, what, that's what's going on here. And as a matter of fact, we'll stop here because um, I don't want to get into the resurrection yet. What you're going to get into after this is he's going to raise her son from the dead. The first time in the Bible you see a resurrection. When we take... Elijah into the New Testament and see how important Elijah is in the New Testament? This is one of the reasons. As they watch Jesus do things like raise the dead, they're going to say, are you Elijah? Come back. Elijah is, is, is a very significant prophet for the Jewish faith. So um, you, you see this miracle, and then you're going to leave this miracle, um, and you're going to see even a greater miracle uh, next week uh, in the resurrection of, of the child of the widow of Zarephath. So uh, reflect with me. What are some faith applications? What are some lessons for our life that you're getting from watching Elijah and the widow of Zarephath uh, in just these few verses that are introducing you, by the way, to the ministry of the prophet? In an amazing way, God will provide. Yeah. Have you talked with um, Jerry and Ed Cornwell about Evan's experience in Morocco? No. They told us this after Vespers last week. Mm. Um, there was an earthquake in Morocco. Mm. Evan works with Samaritan's Purse. Does anybody here know the story? No. Okay, I, I probably am not going to do it justice, but... Jerry and Ed told us this last week. Um, they had, the people in Morocco have nothing. There, there was no electricity. They couldn't store anything, so they needed just basics, water and bread. And um, it's an application. It's, mm. I'm sitting here thinking this is so ridiculously close. Um, so one of the people with Samaritan's Purse is tasked with finding bread. And... She, I'm going to make it a she, I, I'm not <clears throat> finds a baker, um, asks if there's any way that they can make bread, and this person can make bread, and so she places an order for 200 loaves, loaves and the person is very basic bread, delivers. Um, so they pick up the loaves, they dispense them, the next day she orders 400 loaves, and they're, they're all used, and the next day, she realizes in the middle of the night she forgot to place the order. And she's panicked. She gets up and she goes early hours of the morning to the, to the baker. And, and she finds the baker. And the baker is in an altercation with a man who is just arguing with her. She doesn't understand the language. Um, but it's a, it's a, the man is very dissatisfied, angry. And, and he, in fact, storms off. And... Um, and the, the woman from Samaritan's Purse goes to the baker and just, you know, looks at her and says, I, I forgot to place my order. And the woman says, this man placed an order and I, I didn't make it right. I left out one of the ingredients. Would you take his? Mm. And she, she said, of course, how many loaves? And she says, 800. Mm. 
And so the order she gives me chills, the order she forgot to place was fulfilled. Mm. And she gave it to mm. me. That's um, amazing. And and so you know, God is still providing bread. And sometimes God miraculously provides for us and we don't notice. Um, you know, and even talking about Morocco, even today around the world people's relationship to food is not the same as our relationship to food. You know, it's interesting here in High Point, we have food deserts. We call those food deserts because people can't walk to a grocery store. I have walked all over the ancient city, the modern, the ancient city of Jerusalem today, and I've yet to see a Harris Teeter anywhere. (laughs) You know, there are people baking bread, but you may not be able to find... Now, in the modern world, there's these little vendor carts that will sell you a falafel. But yeah, all over the world, you know, almost every time I hear, and and this is serious, this is why HPU did not get rid of uh, the food line over there when HPU bought all that property because that would create a food desert there. So I'm glad HPU um, left the food food line there. Um, But even when I hear us talking about food deserts, I almost pray that nobody around the world hears us talking about food deserts. Because we just mean we can't walk to a Harris Teeter or a food line. But yeah, around the world. So, you know, if you think about even the way a lot of people around the world have to live in a relationship to both water. Again, Israel's making water out of the Mediterranean Sea today because, again, our, we just turn on the faucet and assume it's going to be there. We can go to the refrigerator, we can go to the freezer, we can go to Paris Theater within five minutes. So our relationship is very different from most around the world, particularly from the ancient world in the midst of a drought. And, and yeah, you see God miraculously provide. I hear stories. I, I was, um, um, last week for 48 hours, I gathered with about 2,500 um, people in Houston, Texas, Y'all know it's hot in Houston? There's a lot of reasons I like North Carolina. But anyway, I gathered for uh, 48 hours in Houston, Texas, with about 2,500 other Methodist types uh, that are, that are that for, this is the 10th year, that are, that are looking for, praying for, awakening, revival, renewal. And by the way, Methodist types, sometimes United Methodists think they're the whole world of Methodism. You know Methodist types are United Methodists, Global Methodists, Free Methodists, Nazarenes, Salvation Army belongs to us. Y'all know that? That's a Methodist branch, Salvation Army. Um, the list went on. Anyway, um, we heard from a, a, an ex-missionary to India. She became an ex-missionary because she got thrown out of India after many years. She, w- she went there years ago as a missionary um, and, and to rescue children. She personally herself has adopted. Hold on. Wait for this. She has adopted 46 children from India. Now, again, she was living in India. So she could do for those 46 more than probably we do for our two kids, you know, by Indian standards. Anyway, so um, she was thrown out, lost her 40. There was one she could bring with her. Had to leave her 45 adopted children in India after decades being there. And um, she should have been thrown out about 25 years earlier, but God kept doing miraculous things to keep her there. But finally, the Indian authorities caught up with her. Um, 
for proselyting because she is a Christian missionary, but she was adopting children. She got thrown out of the country, could bring one child with her. Had, had to, uh, as, she, as she termed it, 45 of her children were re-orphaned as a result of that. But she told story after story after story after story of um, God's miraculous provision, like what you're talking about um, there in Morocco. Um, and a lot of times God's doing, is providing for us in miraculous ways and we don't even notice. Sometimes we look back over our lives and we see that God provided in miraculous ways. But sometimes we, we I, w- I wish for myself, I wish I would notice it when he's doing it. Um, I remember when I yielded my call to the ministry and I was so young. Um, you know, I, I was like 18, 19. Um, terribly shy, speech impediment. And I remember saying to God, I have no idea how I can do education. Because my, my, my father was a doffer, my mother was a spinner, if you know what a cotton mill is. Um, so, and I, a lot of times I didn't notice, but now I look back over my life, I've got four college degrees. Uh, it wasn't because I came from a family that could pay for that. Um, I wish throughout life, and I should know better, and you should know better, and we take notice of how God provides for us. Um, yeah, keep going. What else? What other faith applications from these two remarkable people, or just reflections on these two remarkable people? By the way, this woman's going to get three tests. The best, I think, as I count. Go get me water. Go cook me some bread. And you see, when her son dies, she's going to, she is going to come after Elijah then. But, so there's three tests this woman is receiving. She's an amazing person in some ways. Because again, had he gone to a Jewish world, Jewish city, Hebrew city, Israelite city, they would have at least known something about God and they would have probably known they should support this prophet of this God. But she doesn't know any of that. She's going to learn what he raises. Oh, yeah. Yeah, write your... By the way, I think if you Google, I haven't done it lately, but if you Google Widow of Zarephath, Widow of Zarephath. If you Google that, I think you'll see some videos where people have uh, portrayed this cinemagraphically. She is a remarkable woman. So maybe go look at that and then write your book of fiction. Because I've wondered, does she become a believer in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Uh, I would love to know the rest of the story in her life. Did she become an evangelist? for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to the people there in Zarephath. Yeah, y'all can write the book, and you don't have to give me any of the royalties. Just write the book and keep going on with the life of the widow of Zarephath because she is fascinating, I think.
Uh, sort of mysterious. Hmm? She was. She was greater than he. God of Israel's bigger than the God. Yes, I, I, she had. You almost would have to think she'd have become a believer. Well, and um, yes, yeah, right. So. And you'll see that when the really the climax of the Elijah story is on top of Mount Carmel, when he 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 taunts, um, mocks the many prophets of Baal. To see which God answers by fire. And, and you see which God answers by fire. Yeah. Um, and then, by the way, you do notice what happens after that. I'm getting ahead of ourselves. After that, Elijah descends because of fear or whatever else, descends into a deep, deep pit of depression. Which is another reason why I like to talk about the life of Elijah. Um, yeah. So the way the story goes is sort of here climaxes with the, uh, the, um, the campaign, the trial, the test, the um, whatever that is on top of Mount Carmel where he goes against all those prophets of Baal and his God wins. And then he goes kind of, it goes this way. And then he has his period of depression and lots of self-pity. Uh, and God kind of pulls him back out of that. So... Um, yeah, we, we, we'll spend a, quite a while on just a few texts because this is an amazing story. And again, this, is, this prophet has had a huge amount of impact in Judaism and Christianity. That's why his name keeps appearing. I think that this whole story just says how much of life is just a God thing. Mm-hmm. You, know, you don't know why, it's a mystery, but somehow or another, God's hand is in everything. Yeah. Yeah, and again, in that model prayer, give us this day our daily bread. If he didn't, we wouldn't get it. That breath you just took came from God. Um, it's amazing how it really is all about God, but we make it all about ourselves. That's the human condition. Anything else before we sort of wrap up? Um, talking about the uh, American mindset, um, you know, whether it's the manna in the wilderness uh, where, where you only have enough for one day except for on the sixth day where they give you enough for the two days to last, but you couldn't hoard it until the next day because then it would be, you know, worms would be in it. But the thing of it is, is that there was just enough. I mean, he didn't like fill her sack all the way up. There would be just enough the next morning to make just one more day's bread, and then the next day there would be just enough to make one day's bread. And if we all remember back to March of 2020, and um, you couldn't buy toilet paper. Everybody, everybody was hoarding things. You could not find, I mean, there were so many things in the grocery store you couldn't find, but then you saw that, talking about YouTube, you saw people at Costco with a huge basket and they had full of toilet paper and they were like like running out of the store of Costco like it was on fire. And, and so the thing of this is that we shouldn't hoard what we have. That God will supply enough for this day and then the next day we're going to pray and God will supply us enough for the next day. And I say that, I don't always follow it. <laughs> um, you know, but 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 I was struck by this when I read this last night that uh, 
you know, you know, it, it was just enough, like you said, for this day, mm -hmm. and then God would give us enough the next day for the next day. Yeah, as you say that, Laura, I'm sitting here thinking about human nature in the West. Um, yeah, we, we, I think, are hoarders by nature because it kind of comes from our selfish, fearful side. We're hoarders by nature. But our culture has actually created hoarders. Um, you ever seen that? I tried one time to watch that, that series on hoard. I couldn't do it because I like simplicity. I like order in my life. And it just freaked me out to even know those people exist in the world. But, we, yeah, we, we all kind of hoard by nature. But we have, yeah, our ancestors would not have known what a hoarder was. Um, yeah, we are a strange tribe here in the West. I had a hoarder on my um, mobile meals. Right. My instructions were knock on the door and yell mobile meals, open the door, and follow the path. Oh, my gosh. Enough room for me to walk in there, and she had enough artificial flowers to fill Walmart. <laughs> <laughs> I had enough room to walk through the living room, around the corner, into the bedroom, and place the tray on the bed in front of her. There was enough room for her body to lie in that bed, mm. or to sit up and to put the food there. Yeah, I don't know if that would have existed in antiquity. That mm. You know, in one of my churches, I had the fire department call me, who figured out that one of my members was a hoarder, and she hoarded newspapers, which are very flammable. She had like every newspaper of the last 40 years stacked up in her house. And the fire department said, can you fix her? Um, that's when I learned rational discussion doesn't help. I, you know, I said, don't you want to get rid of these newspapers? And I, I mean, why do you hoard newspapers? But um, she hoarded newspapers. Um, my mother-in-law would say a lot of things because she went through the, the depression. depression. Uh, cereal inside the bags, it's, it's like wax paper. Mm -hmm. And uh, just all kinds of things. Just because she went through the depression, I could kind of... Uh, my father went through the depression, and I sort of understand that, too. Because, well, he always told me, he grew up in the mountains of West North Carolina, and he said they never wanted for food because they grew their own food. You know, he, to his dying day, he wouldn't eat rice. There's things he wouldn't eat because he ate too much. He could not imagine anybody going to a store and ordering or a restaurant ordering biscuits and gravy because that was his staple throughout life growing up. But, you know, he was sort of, oh, you know, he paid attention to that stuff too. There, there's, there's, at some point, I love the book of Proverbs. We are called to be prudent. We are called to plan for the future. We're not called to be crazy and weird about it. And I think sometimes we cross the line from prudence. Um, I'm sure I told you the story, or some of you are new, but after my father retired, he retired like three times. He worked full-time till he was 80, part-time till he was 91. From after he was a doffer, as long as he could take that, he retired from a cotton mill, and he went to work for Belks and drove their trucks till they got nervous with this 80-year-old man driving their trucks, and they found something else for him to do anyway. And at that same point, when my mother was still alive, because my dad went to work for Bell, she got a 10%, 20% discount. So she was buying stuff. Well, my father, everything that Belks wanted to throw away, he brought home. 
which was not an issue till he moved into a retirement community and <laughs> somebody had to go. And I remember going to my bedroom one day, one night to go to sleep. I was back home visiting. My bedroom's still there. I grew up in. I, I went, laid down my bed, looked up, and right there's Buddha looking at me. <laughs> and I get out of bed and I go back here and I say, Dad, why's why do you have a Buddha? My dad was a good Baptist. I'm like, why do you have a Buddha? Well, they were throw- it was cracked. It was porcelain. It was cracked. And they were going to throw it away, so he brought Buddha home. So when he moved into the retirement home, he did just, well, he let us take care of everything for him. Clean out his house, move him to the retirement home. But let me tell you what I learned about that. I had to get him out of the house. Because I carried a whole lot of stuff to a ministry that I could give it to. I mean, plastic flowers. He is bringing up. Why do we have plastic? So I, I could, it took me all about an hour to realize I can't clean the house out with him sitting there because everything I want to get rid of, he's like, no, we may need that one day. So I had to find a sister that occupied him while I cleaned out the house because there is something in that mindset. We have to learn spiritual wisdom is learning to trust the provision of God, be prudent, don't be stupid. The book of Proverbs tells you to plan. But, um, yeah, our culture, we, we're a little weird about this. But particularly as people of faith, we should pay attention to the miracles of God's provision in our lives. Um, the fact that y'all got here today without being in a wreck on... And I just came back from driving in Houston. But uh, the fact, I mean... That was a miracle that I survived Houston. I flew to Houston, but I drove in Houston. Um, well, that's even miraculous. I learned something. I'm, I don't like, I'm, this is confession. I don't like standing in lines. I'm working on my patience. So I've, I thought what I've always done, I couldn't do this in Houston. I fly in, go to their car rental place. Pick the one with the shortest line. I'll pay extra to get out of the line. Pick the one with the shortest line and rent a car. Well, I flew into Houston. Tammy and I flew into Houston, went to the car rental place. There were two car rental places with long lines, and the rest with none. Well, the reason was all of the rest of us that had flown into Houston and rented cars, I literally... Well, I got in one of the long lines, and my wife got in the other long line. See, which one of us gave the car first? My wife got the last car that Budget Rental had to offer. Now, I felt a little guilty about all the people in line behind my wife, but I also got a car. Um, so that was sort of a miracle, because I'm not sure. I'd, I'd have Ubered all over, but I don't. But you know, we got the last car. Now, what was interesting, we go out to Tame's going to drive, because I'm a better navigator than she is. I, I tell you in advance where to turn. and Anyway, so she's driving. I'm the navigator. Well, we get in the car, and my wife's like, how do you start it? And I said, you, you put the key in it. This was an old car. It's the last one that budget had. You had to put the key in it because she hadn't had a car in a long time that you had to physically put a key in and turn. And, uh, but God provided. God provided us a car that guys are around Houston, and God got us safely out of Houston because um, I didn't realize... Fourth largest city in the United States? I, I, I know it now. Um, but yeah, the way God protects us and provides for us, he, he does it all day long and we just keep on bebopping along and not even notice. Uh, this is pretty miraculous here, but you know some of the ways he's provided for all of us could approach the miraculous.
again. Well, that's a good place to stop. Um, yeah, which God are you serving? Choose this day which God you're serving. Let's, let's, let's pray together.